And before I chant the Metta Sutta, I wanted to say Wanju, Wanju, Nunakot, welcome, welcome, everybody. Um, Wanju, Modich Yogas, welcome, wonderful women. Wanju, Modich Maman, welcome, wonderful men. And Nala Jarabin Nunot no Janju Kadijin Wankin. I'm glad you're coming together, laughing and chatting. Bulo Kadijin Joint Joint Barajini. Let's share this knowledge together. So I want to pay my respects to the Aboriginal people, in particular the Noongar Wajak people whose land I sit on today here in Australia. And before, as a before I chant the Metta Sutta as a sign of respect, I want I do want to pay respects to um, Aboriginal elders of the present, of the past, and those that are emerging. And one of the much-loved elders in Australia is Kev Carmody. And I wanted to just read, they're actually song lyrics, but I think they're quite beautiful. And it's from his song, Eulogy for a Black Person. It's called I've Been Moved. I've been moved by the wind upon the waters and the shadows as the leaves are blown. When that old wind moans on a weary winter Sunday, like a friend that keeps knocking at my home. I've been moved by the crying of the newborn, the honey sweetness of the air in spring. I've watched the moonlight flood across them sleepy hills and valleys, heard the sadness in her requiem. I've been moved watching nature slowly turning through the seasons and the patterns that she brings. And as the morning star proceeds to break another new day, find the black crow is already on the wing. I've been moved watching something that's been suffering, be it humankind or any living thing. From the fury of the storm, that old parched ground is reborn and the desert's blooms satisfy a king. I've been moved by the tireless sea of churning and then scarlets of an inland dusk. Whoa, when a close friend has died and turned away and cried as they laid him down and shoveled in the dust. I've been moved. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. 
wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be happy, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be happy. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the sky and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to fixed views. The pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Ah, oh, feels wonderful to chant that. <laughs> I thought tonight I've got I've got this notebook here, you see, of all these wise things I've written down after listening to Ajahn Brahm or Ajahn Brahmali. And there's a couple of things I was just going to read out because I thought they were quite beautiful. The first, and I think they're quite helpful for our meditation as well. So let me just find this first one. So this is something that I'm pretty sure Ajahn Sajato read out recently when he came to visit Dharmaloka. He did a wonderful series where he was talking about um, right knowledge and invariably the subject turned to jhanas and I'm not um, purporting to be an expert by any means of jhanas, but I thought that this little paragraph was quite inspiring. 
And in jhana, this is what Ajahn Tate had to say. In jhana, the mind will simply have a separate calm and peace that isn't in this world or another world or anything of the sort. There's no one and nothing at all, just the mind's own separate state, which is called the world of the mind. In that state, there won't be the word world or anything else. The conventional realities of the world won't appear there, and so, so no insight of any sort will arise there at all. And he says, once you have gone beyond the world and beyond suffering, you start to come into that state of stillness, knowing and seeing according to reality. This was in the response to the question, well, what do you do after jhana? And that reminded me of um, the very first thing I wrote in my pink notebook here. And if you've read um, Ajahn Brahm's stories, there's one about um, pyramids and when he, not pyramids, or when he went to um, South, South America, basically, and Machu Picchu. And he was, you know, a lot of people wonder, well, why were the pyramids built or why were, were these great structures built above the jungles? And Ajahn Brahm said, well, it's really quite simple. So I'll just read you this because I thought this was quite nice as well. When you see silence, don't label it you'll end up destroying it. You don't need to create it, you just need to recognise and notice it is there. And we live with a jungle of ideas. So Friday night we had a, um, I gathered together um, Venerable Tubden Choki and Venerable Waycan um, Gita and Ayayeshi. And we all, and I intended to have a very serious discussion about morality and ethics. And we got to question time, and someone put up their hand and said, When you meditate, how do you know if it's good or bad? And part of me thought, Oh, yeah, okay. Back to basics, so many of us are living with a jungle of thoughts and ideas. But above that is a wonderful space, like the top of a pyramid, where you can see to infinity in every direction. You perceive the space, you perceive the gaps, you perceive the gaps between the thoughts. You don't need to invent a word for it. You can know what something is without conveying the word. Just like you don't need to be a poet or write a poem, you just need to notice spaces there. 
to experience silence waiting in the moment. It's always there. Realize there's some rest in silence and then your meditation takes off. So it's not a matter of, it's almost a tautology to ask if the meditation is good or bad because it's beyond that. It's beyond judgment. It's about, to me at least, it's about coming into that place of stillness and silence. So rather than me ramble on about the virtues of meditation and silence and space and, and wafty ideas like jhanas, let's just know the experience and meditate. So what I would ask you to do, and I'll set a timer because I'm likely to just go and drift off for 45 minutes and, <laughs> and we've got to have a chat as well. So what I'm going to do is just set a timer for 30 minutes and we'll enjoy a meditation. So most important thing about meditation, of course, is to be kind and compassionate to yourself. So what I would ask that you do is make sure you're comfortable. It's always about setting good intentions. And I quite like the little model that was presented last week that um, was sort of presented as a bit of a triangle. There's intention. There's attention and there's attitude. And one thing I've learned over the years is to avoid that whole conundrum of asking whether the meditation is good or bad and dealing with the jungle of thoughts and ideas. It's often helpful to set a little intention. So settling into the space and what I mean by that is taking a moment to become still, making a commitment to yourself. Closing down the eyes if it feels right to do so. 
Any useful hack is to turn your gaze downwards beyond the nose. And just take a moment to do a quick scan of the body. Making any adjustments that you need to. And it really doesn't matter how you sit. But a good idea is to sit in a way where your body is not constricted that you can create space, allow them energy to move freely, particularly up and down the spine. And I don't know about you, but it's been quite a big day. And sometimes it's nice just to remind yourself that you're alive. So what I'd ask you to do is take a nice, long, deep in-breath. Hold it. Then let it go nice and slowly. And we're going to do a little exercise to remind the body and the mind because they are quite connected of what it is to hold on and what it is to let go. So as you take a nice, long, deep in-breath, I want you to just squeeze the fists. And as you breathe out, let them go. Now this time when you breathe in, making those fists, say to yourself, this is holding on. And as you breathe out, this is letting go. Let's do that a couple of times. This is holding on. This is letting go. Holding on. Letting go. 
and give the hands a shake. I find that enormously helpful. Then you can let your breath return to a nice, even, steady rhythm. And this is where you can set a bit of an intention for your practice. And it doesn't have to be anything too profound. It can just simply be for the next 25, 30 minutes. I'm going to give myself the space to relax. To let go of the day. To rise above the jungle of thoughts and perceptions. And see clearly. Now, so we don't completely drift away.
what I invite you to do is bring your attention to your toes. Maybe give them a bit of a wriggle. Feel the connection of the toes with the earth. And if you're sitting in a chair, just try and place your feet so they make full contact with the floor. So you get a sense of being connected to the earth. And you know, after his enlightenment, one of the things, the very profound things the Buddha did was he touched the earth and he said, the earth is my witness. The earth had borne witness to his many lifetimes. So letting your attention fall right down to the earth. Letting any tension, any stress or worry feeling the energy of the day Coming down to earth. And we start with these very bodily feelings. The feeling of touching the earth. feeling of the muscles contracting and releasing, 
because it's real and tangible. So that's a physical form. Rupa. And it's also the body of the breath. And this is where you can use the breath to help you relax. Feeling the in-breath and the out-breath. I want you to feel the muscles in the feet, the toes. It's by your breathing in, a sense of awareness. An awareness of breathing and sitting and releasing, letting go with a sense of softness. Relaxing on the out-breath. Gradually, you can move your attention up to the calves. And again, you can start with quite coarse movements. So maybe contracting the calves on the in-breath. And softening on the out breath. Moving up further still to the thighs, backs of the thighs, the fronts of the thighs, the bottom. Just feeling the muscles on the in-breath. Maybe doing that exercise again of sort of contracting the muscles. This is holding on. Breathing out. This is letting go. Letting go. Connecting with the earth.
Moving to the hips and pelvis. Moving slightly. Just moving with the in-breath. Letting go with the out-breath. And the lower half of the mountain, the, the body like a mountain. It's sitting gently on the earth. Knowing that you're sitting. Knowing that you're breathing. Coming into stillness. Going beyond the world. Nowhere to be. Nothing to do. No one to be. Simply breathing. The space within. 
Becoming the space without This is where you start to move from attention to awareness. Feeling this form of body falling away. giving way to a beautiful feeling time. Vedana. Feel the movements of the breath. Rise and fall. The ribs. 
Maybe the flow of energy up and down the spine. This is where you can feel the breath traveling all the way up the spine on the in-breath, flowing down on the out-breath. Nurturing. Kind and gentle. It's like you're massaging your body with the breath from the inside. You might even smile. Just noticing the feelings of gladness, joy or rapture. Like you're standing at the very top of one of those pyramids, looking out over the jungles at the far horizon. Pure and peaceful. Your mind clear and calm. Like a cloudless sky.
I've been moved watching nature slowly turn and through the seasons and the patterns that she brings. And as the morning star precedes the breaking of a new day, find the black crow is already on the wing. Nyan Kwat Wien. May I be safe. Nyan Kat Kwat. May my head and my thoughts be good. May I be mentally happy. Nyan Kat Kwat. May my body be well from my head to my feet. Nyan Kat Nyarajin Pirakin Kwat. May I walk this earth with ease. Nalakwap win, Nalakat quap. Nalakat nyada jenjen pirika quap. Nala jenjen kulini quap. When you're ready, it's feeling that space within, that beautiful silence. Bring your hands to your heart. And looking back on this peaceful half hour, just reflect on the journey you've been on. And say thank you. For giving yourself this gift of silence. I don't know if you heard the bell, but in your own time, just gently opening the eyes. And coming back to the screen <laughs> to say thank you. Thank you to everyone for meditating together. Thank you, Sandra. That was lovely. Thanks very much. I find the uh, body scan always 
good to start off with it, whether it's a 10 minute one or a half an hour one. That's brilliant. But I like the way when you described the massaging of your body from the inside with your breath. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we often do that meditation at my workplace. Um, I teach a class every Wednesday lunchtime. I've been doing that for about five years and um you know, we're all wound up because we've been in meetings or looking at computers and people just want to relax. And, yeah, it's nice to imagine you use your breath to move it around the body and just release all those points of tightness and tension. It's quite lovely. Now, I was trying to work out what to talk about tonight whether I would talk about Brahma Viharas and compassionate listening or just talk in general about the meditative experience and some of the things I learnt um, from reading Shayla Catherine's book Beyond Distractions. So maybe... I'm not too sure. I might talk about compassionate listening. Or maybe someone would like to ask a question straight up about the meditation or a particular thing they would like to cover off on this evening. Is it always sort of draws a fine line between sharing and entertainment with <laughs> sometimes. Mm. Okay. Well, I might talk about compassionate listening. So I'm going to um, be doing some chaplaincy training soon. And it's funny when you decide to do these things, sort of go backwards and forwards thinking, oh, should I, shouldn't I? And then out of the blue, I've had quite a few just different phone calls this week of people who might be struggling with different things. And it sort of took me back to some... um, notes I put together a couple of years ago when I decided to run a retreat at Jana Grove. I felt very brave and I decided to run a weekend retreat and I was going to, um, well, my idea was to try and impart some skills in compassionate listening because at the time, um, at the Buddhist Society, we had established a care group. And the aim of the care group was basically to create a um, bit of a space where people could come together and make friends. That was its idea in its simplest form. It grew into a um, few experiments, including a care line. But 
at the heart of it, it really was just about providing space for people. Because one of the things that I had noticed myself having, um, you know, gone to Dharmaloka in Western Australia on and off for about 20 years is that people would come along and they would enjoy the Dharma talk and they would enjoy all the jokes, good or bad, and then they'd all go home. And I was quite shocked when some people said to me, you know, I've been coming here for 20 years or however long it is, and I've never actually made any friends. I thought, that's terrible. <laughs> that's not what this is about. This is the Buddhist society. <laughs> We're supposed to be all kind, happy, friendly people, and of course you can make friends here. But somehow they were still feeling a bit lonely. So that's when I thought, well, you kind of have to be the change you want to see. Because to be quite honest, that's the reason why I'd stopped going along as well. Because I would go along to be a big crowd of people and, and then we'd just all disperse. So we tried a couple of experiments and um, we decided that we would run a series of Wednesday night talks. And the idea was that we would have different people from the lay community come in and give a bit of a talk, lead a meditation, and we would have... Um, tea and biscuits and whatever else around the um, kitchen table afterwards. And we did that for quite some time and we established quite a nice group and people really appreciated that. And then I decided that um, I would help my friend re-establish the Kalyana friendship community. So they'd always been a Kalyana Mitta at the Buddhist society. So Kalyana Mitta means, um, it means spiritual friends, basically. So we formed a, so we decided to reinvigorate the Kalyana Mitta because it had basically fallen away. And the reason was um, the Kalyana Mitta had always been seen as a youth group at the Buddhist society. But over the years, the younger people got older and so, and, and they wanted to continue on meeting, but the young people also needed their space because, you know, you, we, I'm sure everyone remembers being in their 20s. It's, I certainly don't really want to go back to my 20s. Um, far too much neurosis. <laughs> so, um, and I know it's just a different scene. So I said to my friend, oh, okay, well, why don't you look after the young person's group? And they came up with the name Be Quiet Perth, which is kind of funny. And I'll look after the Kalyana Friendship Community, which got coined KFC. That was Arjun Brahm's um, suggestion. Just letting you all know that. So the KFC <laughs> was meeting every couple of weeks. 
And we had lots of great parties, as much as you can party down at the Dharma Hall. And we ran, um, oh, gosh, we had um, movie nights and what else did we do? We had some musicians, both good and bad. <laughs> we had shared meals and, you know, Dharma discussions and meditations and that all went fairly well. And then somehow it changed a bit at the beginning of this year and I don't really know why. I think there's something that's happened in society overall because I've noticed that um, I don't know if it's the cost of living that is just causing people to bunker down or if it's the magnitude of changes in society of late, but people just aren't coming out like they used to. And I've noticed that with a number of things. Now, I was getting a bit worried about that, so I decided to just give KFC a rest for the rains period. And instead, we would focus on the Rains Retreat Speaker Series. And that has gone really well. And it's quite a strange thing that's happened in that we decided not to stream any of the talks this year. So no live streaming. But we do record them and then we upload them afterwards. And the interesting thing is we've had a really good turn up this year and people have really enjoyed just having a good old-fashioned chat. And the Q&A has been a lot freer when people, you know, are not being live-streamed. So it's quite, um, it's really curious stuff. But anyway, I went off on a um, journey there but I just sort of wanted to set the context. And the, the other reason why um, things might have changed is that, you know, we've all come out of um, a few years of COVID and lockdowns and in the last week or so I've seen people wearing masks again. Um. So that might have turned a few people away as well. But, you know, there's also been some really beautiful evolutions. And one of them is a group like this, like this, this Armadale group. You've become a global group. And I say to my friends, oh, well, I'm going to sit down tonight and I'm going to talk to people all around the world from Armadale, <laughs> they're just stunned. And the same thing at my work, actually. When we had to go into lockdown, I shifted the lunchtime meditation online. And what that enabled me to do was connect with our regional offices so now I have people from all around the state that come together to meditate. And that wouldn't have happened otherwise. 
the thing is that it took ages to get people to come back in person into the room because they have just they just really love sitting in their own private space with their headphones on. And some of them have even booked their work from home days so they can sit and listen to the meditation at lunchtime with their headphones on. So that's that's been quite lovely. <laughs> but what I was going to um, talk about tonight um, is some of the common questions that I get asked by meditators. So I'll abandon the idea of talking about the Brahma Viharas. They might make an appearance. But some of the questions, you know, it's, it's there's always a, a um, list of standard questions that seem to roll out at any um, meditation session. And the one from Friday night was, you know, how do I know if my meditation is good or bad? How do I know if I'm doing this properly? And people can get really quite worked up about this. And I quite like what Shayla Catherine had to, had to say about this. She basically has... Um, I guess she's reinterpreted, or not reinterpreted, but she's put um, the sutta on two kinds of thought into plain English terms. So I don't know about you, but the suttas can sometimes be a bit confusing to read. They get quite repetitive working in triads. But basically there are two kinds of thought. And... It would come as no surprise, but they're either helpful or unhelpful. So that sounds all a bit twee and simplistic, really. But the basic message is whatever one thinks or ponders upon will become the inclination of the mind. So what, what does that really mean? And another little pearl I picked up was that, you know, when we have our, have these thoughts, we see the thoughts, we move to try and understand those thoughts, and then there's a choice as to how we respond to them. And we can respond to them wisely and forget and let go of them, or we can hang on to them. And we can use them sort of like a pieces of me kind of approach. And they can become a prison. And there's a wonderful talk that you can um, you can find it on Dharma Seed. And it's called The Prison of Self. It's by Aya Medanandi. She's um, a senior nun, a Terry 
from um, Canada. I forget what her monastery is called, but she's well worth looking up. It's I am Edanandi. And basically, we need to guide our thoughts so they guide our deepest intentions rather than being a slave to them. You know, we don't want a mind that can't think. But we don't want to be a slave to the thoughts either. And this is where I was trying to explain to the young man who asked the question about good and bad to say it's very easy to create a prison of self. So all through the day, we'll go through our day and we'll continuously make judgments. I am this, I am that. And I guess a lot of people come to meditation with this intention, I want to be this kind of person, I want to be that kind of person, I want to be a good person. I want to think these things. I don't want to think those things. But that can be quite scary for some people because they feel like they're losing themselves. It's it kind of reminds me um, of something I read in To Kill a Mockingbird. So there's a, um African-American man and he, he pretends because society has, society has placed him in a certain position. And so what he does is he goes around with a brown paper bag and he pretends to drink out of it because that's what that's the stereotype society has assigned to him. And so he puts all this effort into living up to that and he carries his bag around and he pretends to drink out of it. And um, the little girl scout, I think her name is in the story, says, why do you do that? What's in the bottle? And he says, oh, it's just Coca-Cola. And she goes, well, why didn't you just drink your bottle of Coke? Like, why do you hide it in the bag? And he said, well, people need reasons to latch on to. And that's, that's, it's almost, it's like he, like he is in this prison of self. Like that is, that is the label that he has been feels he has been assigned. He has obviously has thoughts that are associated with that label. He can't see how to break free, so he just pretends. There must be so much work and effort in that. So why would we burn up? so much effort allowing our um, thoughts to be a slave. So I thought that, that this is something that was rambling around my mind 
And the other thing that was rambling around my mind, and this is a rambly talk, is that I remember another saying of the Buddha where he says, everything I've experienced in this life, I've experienced in this fathom-long body. So it's not... You know, we, we concoct our own reality is the other way of putting this. Our rambling minds, our papanja minds, they're, they're self-concocted. And there's really three causes of this. So there's the craving of the tanha a thirsting to be a certain way, to fit a certain model. There's a certain level of conceit, the way the mind identifies this notion of self, always comparing or always trying to be equal with. And then there's views or ditty, the opinions, the attitudes, the beliefs, the longing for identity, our worldviews. And another, I think the game changer in all of this, another saying from the suttas is that a liberated one will think whatever thought one wants to think and will not think any thoughts one doesn't want to think. So imagine if it was that simple. I choose to think these thoughts. I don't think those thoughts. There's a choice. I choose to do harm to myself by thinking thoughts that leave me awake all night, wondering who I am, obsessing over something I might have said or something I've forgotten to do. And, you know, iPhones are a pretty wonderful medium for assisting this. Or I can choose... Not to think that. I, I can choose to have thoughts of loving kindness. I can choose to have thoughts of unkindness. I can choose to have compassion. I can choose to be nasty if I want. But, you know, that usually comes back to bite you. I can choose to have appreciative joy, mudita. And I can feel the, the pleasure in appreciative joy. Or I can choose to be equanimous. And by being equanimous, that's not being a doormat. I mean, if I see if something is not right, I see that someone is being ill-treated, 
No, I'll stand up and I'll be assertive. But I'll also pick my battles. And so, you know, two kinds of thought. Um, so I think I also like to go back to my original talk and share this passage by um, Marcel Proust in Search of Lost Time. So no one can equate Proust with brevity, but I like the observation he makes here about perceptions and conditioning. And what he says is that our social personality is created by the thoughts of other people. Even the simple act which we describe as seeing someone we know is to some extent an intellectual process. So we pack up the physical outline of the creature we see with all the ideas we've already formed about him and in the complete picture of him which we compose in our minds those ideas have certainly the principal place. It could be his or her. And it's kind of like the story of the man with the paperback. Another, maybe I'll just stop there a moment and just ask if anyone's got any questions on anything I've said there. Because I'd like to unpick it a bit. Does anyone have any questions? Hands up. Um, oh, Maureen. You're the only person I can see on the screen. <laughs> Maureen. Maureen, go for it. Okay, let me just adjust my screen so I can see all the hands. All right. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Sandra, I, I really enjoyed your meditation and also your talk. And um, I just wondered, it seems a very naive question, but I, I would like a device to help me if I, if I can make that choice about thinking certain things about certain people. Can you give me some tools that I could use to do that, to make those choices? Do I just say to myself, I think I heard somebody else say it, I think it was Venerable Wakeham, to say, just drop it. Mm. If, but I wonder where that goes <laughs> when when you drop it. And because I sometimes obsess over things and I can't get, I can't turn the record off. And I would really love to be able to learn to do that. But can, yeah. you, can you help me, please? I can, only, I can only talk from my own experience. Um, and I owe a lot of this to my husband, actually. He <laughs> is quite a serious meditator and he is also incredibly forward. And he'll tell me exactly what he thinks, mm. which, um, you know, has its ups and downs, but <laughs> quite often he'll remind me, he'll say, look, it's a mirror. Remember you're looking in a mirror. 
And quite often, oh, CH2, you're very noisy. I'm going to mute you. Um, quite often, what we what we see in others that annoys us might actually be a projection of our own behaviours and conditioning and perceptions. And that's a little hard to take. It's a little sobering. But it's also quite useful. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I get annoyed at my boss. It's like, oh, my goodness, you know, la, la, la. And my husband will say, Sandra, I remember those same conversations three jobs ago. <laughs> There will always be that mirror to hold up to yourself. So what well, you need to do is you need to look deep within and, yeah. and so you give yourself that the prison of self. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. Thank you. Thank you very much. We'll it's a long day. <laughs> Maybe my filters fell off. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> You'll certainly remember that and try it. <laughs> it's, oh no, it's a little. No, no it's, it's yeah. helpful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Has anyone else got a brave question? <laughs> I'll mute myself. Oh, yeah. Not all silent. Never no, I knew mental had his hand up. <laughs> I think that something I can definitely use is the clenching of the fist and letting go. I just think that's just such a good visual. And I can see myself doing it several times a day. Yeah, I, I think that's really helpful because I know that um Years ago, um, oh, what was the situation? Um, oh, that's right. I had a, I had a car accident, and I really injured my back. And I made the, you know, this is just a bit opinionated, I guess, but I made the decision to pursue compensation through the. Motor, motor vehicle insurance program and oh my goodness what I soon learned is that you end up in this horrible um, prison of self like trying to almost trying to prove that you're injured because everyone's trying to disprove it <laughs> And I found like I was just walking around and I didn't even realise I'd be walking around with my fist clenched. And I think the think what made my situation worse was that I was holding on so much and there's a strong mind-body connection with this stuff. So if you've got a tight body, you end up with a tight mind. And so it took quite a bit to actually realise I was holding on. So I find that that little exercise of 
this is what it is to hold on. This is what it is to let go. Quite useful. And it was actually that experience which led me to meditation. And that's what got me through. Like learning that mind-body connection and learning how to use mindfulness to know when you're holding on and letting go. Because, um, you know, life can be pretty tough. And if you have, have had the misfortune of feeling like you're having to prove yourself in a system which really feels quite unfair, then, you know, you've also got to learn to look after yourself quite well and know that holding on and letting go. Yeah. Has anyone else got a question? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No. I'd just like to make a comment, Sandra, if if I may. Mm. It's about uh, our thoughts. Mm. And uh, I find that most, if not all, of my thoughts and the behavior or behaviors that flow on from there are reactions to or conditioned by things that haven't that have happened or if they haven't happened, I'm thinking that they could happen. So it's like you're reacting to something. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, it's useful to, to know, to know that, which is very difficult to say, all oh, right, these are just blah, blah, blah. And so let go. And hence the question, Oh, is my meditate or was my meditation good or bad? And I'll sort of, I've stopped. Actually, I never have asked that question of myself. I said, well, whatever happens, happens. And go yeah. ahead. Yeah. yeah, and it was interesting. So Sky will remember, remember this as well. That we, um, Shaila Catherine on the retreat she ran last year, or this year, I can't remember now. But she made us do this activity and well, first of all, she started by, oh, how much time do you spend planning? Oh, I thought, at first I thought, oh, I don't spend a lot of time planning. I'm not an obsessive planner. And then as I started to watch the mind over the rest of the day, I realised, oh, my goodness. There is a lot of planning that goes on. It might be quite surreptitious, but you know, even the all right, what am I what am I going to eat today? Okay, my today I'm gonna to eat cheese. Um, or today I'm going to do this. Yes, I'm going to sit down and meditate for 45 minutes and then I'm going to go for a walk down to the dam because the the um, ducks might be there and I like to watch the ducks. And what she said was that obsessive planning is not preparation because 
you know, I roll up to lunch. There's no cheese. Today it's tofu. I mean, the world is hardly going to collapse, but I've um, spent a bit of unnecessary time there planning for something that never eventuated. Or even with this talk tonight, you know, I'm surrounded by bits of paper of things I was going to say. But when I sat down and I looked at it, it just didn't really seem that appropriate. So all that planning, I should have just gone down the lake and watched the ducks. <laughs> Probably would have been far, far more fruitful. <laughs> so obsessive planning is not preparation. <laughs> And it's like I, I think there's a real freedom once you realise that. Once you, another thing my husband always says to me, he said it's already over. It's just, it's only one moment. And when you think about it, how many times have you planned to give a talk or planned to? do something and it didn't work out or it worked out even better than you'd imagined. I know the happiest days, but I've had are the ones that I haven't planned. It's um, less tight that way.